Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people from the field of eating disorders who share their professional and personal journeys, experiences, reflections, their big ideas that are never quite represented in this way in academic publications and professional conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am your host for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. Delighted to be with you today and delighted to be joined by Professor Kyle DeYoung. Professor DeYoung is a psychologist uh, on faculty in the Department of Psychology at University of Wyoming. He is also associate editor of Eating Behaviors and is a former president of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Kyle, it's really great to have you here. Oh, thank you. The pleasure's mine. So, Kyle, we'll start sort of at the beginning, uh, growing up years. When did you have an inkling that you were going to go into psychology, into mental health? How did that all start for you? Uh, it caught me by surprise, I think, somewhere in the spring semester of my freshman year in college. Um, I was at the University of Iowa, uh, having grown up in South Holland, Illinois, is about three hours away, which felt quite far uh, for me at the time. And, and um, that was among them, the few drivers for why I went there, but I ended up getting very lucky uh, in a number of ways in my, in my education. And this was one of them that uh, I went as an electrical engineering major uh, for no particularly good reason. Um, aside from a high school guidance counselor who said, oh, you're good at math, you should do engineering. Uh, that was, it was no more elaborate than that. And uh-huh. in any event, my uh, one of my roommates for my first two years, he had taken uh, intro to psych, whatever it was called at the time, in, his, in our fall semester. And during registration for spring semester, I, I was, he and I were just simply chatting about classes and uh, he'd mentioned that class is one he really enjoyed. I'd never taken a psychology class. I'm not sure I could have provided a um, accurate definition of the field even at that point in my life. Um, but just the idea of a college class that someone could enjoy um, struck me as novel. <laughs> I should uh-huh. tell you, I guess, what again, how I was feeling about my coursework. And um, and so I fitted into my schedule. I was still an engineering major uh, and uh, but took the, you know, took the liberty of of squeezing an additional class in, uh, among all the other engineering things for that spring semester, uh, and it was a uh, uh, David Watson uh, who I, I think might be uh, nearing his retirement now. No, he's at Notre Dame now, uh, but he was at Iowa at the time, and he was teaching that intro to psych course that semester. Of course, I had no idea who he was apart from anyone else. Uh, but he was an engaging professor. Um, immediately had my attention. Both his passion for the material, but also the material itself struck me as is inherently interesting in a way that nothing else I was studying uh, was interesting to me in, 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 in any way similar. Uh, so uh, that, that really got the hooks in me. But um, in terms of, you know, a, an applied aspect of that discipline in clinical psychology specifically, that took a, uh, quite a bit longer. And to kind of jump forward in the story, um, I eventually changed my major and dropped the engineering stuff. And uh, basically, I took every psychology class I think that was offered available to me. I was really, I was really uh, excited by it all. I added a, a philosophy um, 
degree, a separate degree in philosophy, a BA in, in philosophy as well, and some religious studies stuff. So you're getting the picture. I was really interested in, I think, understanding um, in people and what, what drives our uh, the things we do, our belief systems and um, our, you know, our thinking and, and so on. And uh, but of those those disciplines, psychology certainly was the one that had me most excited because it felt like the most tangible to me, uh, um, the, the area that could, something could actually be done in. Um, and uh, toward getting into my senior year, I had worked in a couple of labs um, you know, as a research assistant, one in social psychology, one a little more in health psychology, but it was in the hospitals. Um, and I was actually interacting with some uh, patients in the hospital who had chronic or in some cases uh, also terminal uh, conditions and interviewing them about kind of um, coping broadly, but also some end of life kind of uh, decisions and stuff like that, really out of my depth. Um, but it, I felt quite compelled by that experience of being able to interact with people in such a important time of their lives and about mm -hmm. such important, you know, topics, I guess. Uh, and, and that distinguished it from the social psych I was, lab I was in, which was methodologically cool. It was neat, right? We're tinkering with all kinds of little things and right. you know, people in all these little minor ways to see how they would react. And, um, and I learned a lot of things there. Uh, but that that distinction of sort of importance was one that was weighing heavily on me. So as I went into my senior year and started thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with all of this education that I was accumulating? Um, I thought about clinical psychology and and uh, that my senior year then was uh, Pam Keel's first year at the University of Iowa after she uh, had left Harvard. And that's the second time in my life I got really fortunate from an education and uh, educational and training perspective because I think she was probably desperate and probably would have taken anybody with a heartbeat, which is why it was hard <laughs> for me because I didn't really have any qualifications to offer except that I had a heartbeat and was uh, willing and interested. So I, I really fell into eating disorders in that way. And for your your listeners, I'm sure they all know who Pam Keel is and, and the influence she's had over the field and in training people. And um, but again, another time in my life where I really didn't know who, uh, you know, I couldn't I couldn't tell you why she was important. As I, from she was a professor in the department and there was a flyer saying she needed people in her lab. Um, but uh, again, she was infectious um, mm -hmm. in her passion for the for the subject and her her interest in discovery and, and also her rigor uh, in the design of, of research and conduct of research uh, just really captured me. Uh, so I, I ended up staying on with her two more years as a post-spec um, research assistant managing one of her large grants. And, uh, you know, that's what uh, ended up getting me into graduate. Really hooked you. And I think it makes me reflect on the reality that as I talk with people for this, uh, this program, Big Ideas and Eating Disorders, how much mentors matter and also how serendipitous some of these occasions can be in our lives where we really don't know that this is where we're going, but something really special and magical happens that we connect with and it really shapes the next turn in our journey. So really interesting. And, um, and certainly um, Pam Keys, she's uh, contributed so much to the field and 
and especially in, uh, in a certain way, one of the things that she's contributed is the mentorship that she's brought to the field. It's been tremendous. Yeah. So you're in her lab, you're mm-hmm. a project coordinator, spending a couple of years getting more experience, understanding more what clinical psych is and specifically eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And you decide you're going to go to a clinical psych program. Where did you wind up going and what was that next step like? Oh, yeah. Uh, I ended up going to SUNY Albany uh, and my mentor there was Drew Anderson. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, from a personality perspective, you probably couldn't have two more different uh, mentors uh, going from uh, Pam to Drew. Pam, Pam's pretty hands-on and certainly um, in, in some very useful uh, ways. And and uh, Drew is, is pretty hands-off also in some pretty useful ways. Um, but it, it, it was a really change in perspective for how I was to get on with my mentor. Uh, you know, Drew really, uh, he gives you space as a, as a student to explore your ideas, to, to make mistakes too. Um, that's something that's been uh, true in my whole life though. I'm the kind of person who unfortunately learns more from making my own mistakes than from others' mistakes. I wish that wasn't true of me, but um I'm old enough now. I think uh, I, don't, I shouldn't expect that to change. <laughs> um, it might be true for most of us. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, it may be. It feels especially salient to me. Um, but yeah, he, he, you know, he, he let me explore. Uh, you know, test some. In retrospect, probably not worthy of testing ideas. Uh, you know, but in the process, I think it helped refine my own sense of what is a good idea and uh, what are good ways of going about it. And he he always um, you know his feedback was uh, was always spot on um, you know when it was requested but he wasn't gonna be inserting himself between a student and and their and their learning essentially um, he's very well read and a very sharp person so uh, and and widely read uh, I, I think is actually the better way of phrasing that. So if, if you get him talking about some sub- subject, he'll, he'll throw out about six citations. You have to jump down really quickly. And I always was amazed by that. I think most uh, students experience their mentor in that way. Uh, but still to this day, I interact with him and, and he'll do the same thing. And I'm like, really? I haven't caught up at all to your reading of the literature yet because <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And I need to go read on it. Um, I had the fortune also of doing a, a summer research fellowship at Mass General Hospital during my uh, graduate uh, school training. So um, got to work a bit with the folks there in the, the eating disorder world at Mass General, uh, which was uh, very helpful for me in getting some more famili- familiarity with some uh, data collected in a clinical hospital setting. Uh, their longitudinal data set is specifically what I worked with and uh, was helpful from a num- in a number of ways. So your comment about mentors is, is, is making me think of that because I oftentimes think about my own training as sort of you know, the chapters of mentorship and who I was able to work with. And um, that's certainly how it's organized in my mind. Yeah. And so what particularly drew you to beyond the mentors, which I do understand, but great mentors, I'm sure you have friends and colleagues who are great ideas, people and mentors, but they're in a field that you just didn't opt to pursue. So mm-hmm. what was it about eating disorders per se that oh. caught your imagination? 
I, I think that again, re referring back to how I felt really fell into uh, Pam Keel's lab, um, it, it was I think it was a matter of timing and, and serendipity, and, and that in all likelihood, there's probably half a dozen or more different topics she could have been studying had she been as uh, you know infectious with her interests as she was that I probably would have picked up on and used as an opportunity to you know, a springboard to get into graduate school the way that I did. And I probably would have been just as interested and happy with them, um, which makes it not a very interesting story, right? It'd be nice if I had, it's like, oh, well, eating disorders because of this formative experience and this thing that, you know, uh, makes them so important to me. Uh, so it doesn't have that element. What I will say is, um, you know, I came to I think become quite attached to uh, to the topic and to and and sympathetic and for the people who and and families who experience them through my contact with those people. Uh, I remember quite distinctly the study I was managing for Pam Keel when I during my post back years had me um, meeting patients at the hospital for uh, a clinical research appointment where they would get blood draws and do some other. Uh, uh, some other aspects of a protocol that, that were done in the hospital, but I was there to make sure, you know, things went according to plan and also be a sort of a warm face that the, the participant will have recognized from previous appointments and all those things. And it occurred, I think they had to be there at seven in the morning or something like that. And a lot of these participants were college students. It was always a struggle to make sure folks were there on time. And it's hard for me too, if I'm being honest with you at that point in my life, uh, to get myself over to the hospital at 7 a.m., uh, but it, it, these appointments stretched for a couple hours, at least a few hours, I think, in the hospital, if I'm remembering correctly. It gave me uh, there was a lot of downtime, and, and I'd chat with folks, and I, you know, I learn about them, and uh, certainly from the diagnostic interviews preceding those appointments, I learned a lot of of sensitive and personal information from people, and um, I, I guess I just I very much feel for what they're going through in in, in the best way that I could, having not experienced it myself. Uh, but you know, I think you have enough of those those experiences, whether they're in research or in the clinical realm, over time, where uh, the familiarity of the subject uh, just ends up occupying a pretty large space in your heart. I guess if that makes sense. So that's kind of where I am now. It, it definitely isn't you know where I started again. I feel like it could have been anything. Yeah. Well, it's again. I think your candor. I, I often say students sometimes ask me. You know, how did you get to the position that you're in right now? And they're intrigued by doing mental health and global health work. And I always say it's a lot easier to tell in reverse because mm -hmm. I could not have predicted it going forward. And I think yeah. as you tell your story, it's a similar experience of certain moments in uh, life trajectory that uh, that where lights go on and opportunities avail themselves and you uh, move forward and become more and more engaged. And it's quite compelling, actually, that that's really how life can be. And so I wonder, as you, you're getting more and more interested in eating disorders, more and more entrenched in the field with the ideas and the, you know, your mind and your heart, as you get to know these folks who are grappling with eating disorders, what were the particular aspects of eating disorders that you started to study, started to, how did you, how did you engage clinically or from a research side specifically? The focus of my attention in eating disorders 
um, really moved around a lot. I, I had many, I think I still have many uh, in, interests. And it also followed a bit of this opportunity kind of trajectory um, you know, with with, uh, with Pam Keel, that 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 study that I was in charge of managing was uh, investigating cholecystokinin, uh, a, a you know gut hormone that seems to be related to feelings of fullness in women with purging disorder, uh, and comparing them to women with bulimia nervosa who had previously been demonstrated to have a blunted cholecystokinin response um, to uh, a test meal, and wondering whether uh, women with purging disorder, of course, who will engage in purging after eating uh, smaller amounts of food rather than these larger binge episodes like in bulimia nervosa, whether they might have uh, perhaps exaggerated uh, cholecystokinin responses, leading them to feel fuller after smaller amounts of food or, or just not blunted responses and whether this is a, a physiological marker of a difference between these diagnoses. And Pam Keel found support for that, uh, that latter idea in that study. But I mentioned that to say that, you know, being the first study I was, I was uh, kind of in charge of in the field, um, not my idea, of course, uh, but, it, but it was very physiological. It had, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of reading. That I don't know how great of a coordinator I was, but I was, uh, I spent a lot of time reading and it was certainly useful to me in the long run. And I got familiar with a lot of things that I'd never encountered in my psychology courses, which were, you know, primarily giving me some basic understanding, of course, in different uh, disciplines of psychology and and uh, in the more advanced um, kind of clinical courses, of course, abnormal psychology and so on, uh, covering diagno diagnostics and, and treatment and, and so on, but really uh, shying away from a lot of the biological aspects, uh, which a lot of psych majors, I think, prefer uh, to do. And, and uh, I, I never really had much sense of uh, how relevant it all was. So I spent a lot of time initially reading all that. There were other hormone type studies going on in Pam's lab at the time that similarly had me reading um, material about uh, you know, ovarian hormones in particular that uh, I was entirely unfamiliar with. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, going into graduate school, that was not the kind of work being conducted in, in Drew Anderson's lab. Uh, the program more broadly was firmly rooted in uh, cognitive behavioral training. Uh, really. I mean, historically, even more behavioral than than anything else, and uh, that that became a major, I think, strength of mine over time was being able to think through it in uh, in ways really true to the theories, uh, how to conceptualize problems from these behavioral and then later uh, more cognitive behavioral perspectives that are you know and being constrained by the theory in important ways. Uh, but I got pretty far from any of that physiological biological stuff that kind of was put uh, put on pause. Um, so my, my work during that time was really, uh, I, I was, I think in retrospect, you know, trying to refine my own cognitive behavioral understanding of, of, of eating disorders using pretty dominant, um, models at, at the time and still dominant to this day. Uh, but then after that, I, I think I've, I've noticed I've, I've gone pretty heavily back into thinking about how behavior and, and physiology are are really coupled and how that coupling is probably pretty important to understand in the eating disorders, uh, probably all disorders, but maybe especially eating disorders because of their, just their, their nature. Um, so, uh, but still to this day, I, any student who works with me, I, I, I hope they would tell you um, that I, I try not to tell them what to do as long as they want to do something that I could generally maybe claim some competence over in, in terms of being able to supervise them on, 
I'm okay with it, which means we have uh, usually any number of very different things happening in the lab at any one time. But I like that. I, it keeps me excited and makes me read things I wouldn't otherwise read. It probably uh -huh. means my own program of research has gone more slowly than it otherwise would have gone, but um, I'm all right with that. Well, there's a saying, right? If you want to go fast, go it alone. If you want to go far, um, go together. And mm -hmm. it's usually a reference to bringing people along, but it may also be a reference to bringing ideas along. And so I wonder, Kyle, as, as I hear you say that, I'm thinking about the research that you've been leading and some of the big ideas that are on your mind. I've asked you to focus on one big idea for this episode. What has this experience brought to that conceptualization for you? What's a big idea that really matters to you at the moment? The big idea, I guess, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a big idea. It's, it's, it's the idea I've been working on here for a while and maybe it'll end up being uh, kind of important, maybe not, it is, a, is about how disruptions to our circadian rhythm, this 24-hour in, uh, internal rhythm that is timed by external influences, uh, how disruptions in that rhythm might be related to some of the eating disorder behaviors, and particularly in particular binge eating and restrictive eating uh, that we observe in folks with, binge, with, with eating disorders. I've uh, been focusing mostly on folks with non-low weight binge spectrum type eating disorders now due to all the complications that occur with, with low weight and have really not being able to wrap my head around um, how all this might generalize to that group yet. Um, but maybe it's relevant there too. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and the basic idea is that, uh, you know, eating, regular eating, eating in people who wouldn't identify as having any problems with their eating, and maybe no one else would identify as such either. Uh, that that kind of eating is partly uh, regulated by circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. right? we, we don't eat while we're sleeping, not just because we can't, but also, I mean, we 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 wake up and we generally don't eat. There's of course problems that we we've come to uh, uh, call a certain thing when folks do that, mm -hmm. but generally we don't do that mostly because we're not hungry in the middle of the night. And there's these circadian uh, circadian regulated mechanisms that control our hunger while we sleep. So we don't wake up hungry. It's the longest we go without eating, of course, is overnight. And yet we don't wake up hungry. Uh, our bodies are made to do this. And to, to uh, you know, we've, we've adapted exquisitely for living on this planet that makes a rotation every 24 hours. And uh, with that said, it's not difficult, particularly in our modern environment, to have that circadian system disrupted. Kyle, can you tell me what was your experience or what had you, what got you thinking that circadian rhythm was relevant to eating disorders? Yeah, I didn't mention my internship training and that's really where this, this starts actually. I was another time in my life, extremely lucky to end up at the Western Psychiatric Institute, uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for my uh, clinical internship probably because I did the match thing with my wife, who was a much better applicant than I was. And, uh, and uh, they wanted her so bad, I think they accepted me along with her. Um, <laughs> that also exposed me to a few different, a couple different literatures I hadn't been uh, familiar with before. And eventually to this rather small literature, it's still small to this date, um, but at the time it was especially small, where 
light therapy had been tested in women with bulimia nervosa. And uh, the effects were pretty consistent across these studies with, I think, as I recall, kind of one exception uh, and fairly dramatic. The trials were brief, which was the piece that made them dramatic to me anyway. Uh, typically only a couple few weeks long, maybe four weeks or so, which of course in the context of a treatment for a, uh, an eating disorder is an extremely short amount of time. Right. Um, and these dramatic reductions in binge eating frequency. Uh-huh. Huh. And, and I, I was, I'd never heard of anybody talking about these studies. By the time I found them, they were over a decade old, I think. And I couldn't, and then I went to look for newer stuff and there just wasn't anything. It kind of looked like a dead end. Huh. Yeah, it just kind of rose up and then it kind of fell off. And they weren't bad studies. They were fairly small, of course, and and uh, pop, uh, sample size and um, some, you know, had some design limitations as early treatment studies oftentimes do. Uh, but they weren't bad studies and they weren't in bad journals or anything like that either. It just seems like maybe they failed to garner wider interest or something. And I brought them up to some people I was working with at the time. Um, this was when I got my first job after my training, uh, I was in North Dakota and I was getting to collaborate with some of the folks in Fargo there, what was at the time called the Neuropsychiatric Research Institute. And, um, you know, I didn't get them too excited either. I think would be, I think they'd probably agree with that characterization. Uh, uh -huh. and, and I was sort of left scratching my head a bit about like why folks wouldn't care about this or what am I missing exactly? And so I really dragged my feet for a long time trying to, uh, kind of hesitant about doing anything with it, but it kept coming back to me, probably because of that sleep training partly, but in thinking about like, why would light therapy, like how is how are lights related? At the time and still to this day, of course, emotion regulation theories were uh, really starting to dominate. And I, so of course my first thought was, well, maybe this is all mood driven. We know about the literature of, of light therapy and mood disorders. We know about the relevance of negative mood to binge eating. Maybe this is just a particularly, uh, to me, interesting way of improving negative mood and you're reducing yeah. binge that way. But it looks like that's probably not the explanation. And we've since conducted our own light trial, and so a very small one, uh, found some positive results, and and, and conducted a, a separate one similarly with positive results. And uh, and in tandem, the mood disorder literature has moved light years ahead, and they've concluded even that the, the mood effect is probably mediated by circadian regulation. Interesting. Yeah. So th once that's really, you know. Take it. This is one time I didn't need to do something for myself. Looking at what the mood disorders folks were doing with light therapy and what they were learning about the mechanisms, I, I finally kind of dropped this idea that I, I need to explain some effect of light on binge eating through mood regulation, though that might be a relevant piece of it, uh, mm -hmm. but that there might be some more direct circadian regulation component. Uh, and light, of, light is known as a zeit giver in this literature. That means time giver, right? The, that it's, it's our most potent external indicator of what time of day it is. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you get bright light in the morning, it kind of synchronizes the circadian clock. But it's one of any number of zeit givers. Um, the research in, in non-human animals typically focuses on three, light, physical activity, and eating. Mm -hmm. Eating is, is in the top three. And whether physical activity or eating is more important is, I think, a matter of, of uh, legitimate debate. But they're in the top three in terms of these external sources of information that tell our brains what time of day it is. And therefore, going forward the next day and the next day, when should I prepare, be prepared to do things such as wake up, be active? When should I be prepared to eat? 
Uh-huh. And um, and this, so you probably figured it out already. It's not a very complicated idea, but that's sort of my thinking. Well, when someone you know has a binge eating episode in the evening, which is the diurnal rhythm of binge eating episodes, it serves as a pretty strong indicator uh, to their circadian regulation uh, uh, aspect of their brains that hey, this time of day is a time we eat a bunch of food. We right. should be prepared to do that tomorrow, for for example. And um, so what's going to happen, partly, especially if this becomes a little more of a habit, is their body will be prepared for an influx, a large influx of calories late in the day, which is going to be associated with appetite and wanting to eat. And then similarly, of course, the diurnal pattern of, of restriction is to not eat earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. Probably partly you know, motivated by restraint and other uh, sociocultural type influences, uh, but also perhaps the diurnal pattern of, you know, uh, our, our ability to inhibit our, our own behavior, right? We tend to be a little better earlier in the day. But that means, of course, that when you don't eat early in the day regularly, your body's going to uh, essentially push back your meal timing. Mm-hmm. That's one way to kind of look at the, the general uh, pattern of intake in folks with binge spectrum disorders is that their intake of food is kind of shifted relative to their sleep-wake cycle compared to folks without those problems. And when you know society and their and their own motives might be telling them, I shouldn't eat anymore. It's you know, seven o'clock, I had dinner, I should be going to bed, uh, their body might be getting them ready for another meal. Right. And, you know, that combination of desires and, and, and societal pressures uh, with their physiology, uh, I, I think might really set someone up to do something that they've then beat themselves up about. And, and, you know, so, you know, what's wrong with me? Why do I have such poor willpower and so on? Uh, right. Well, you know, they, they, they might not have a whole lot of say in the matter. Right. Really interesting. And what data do you have about the relationship between the binging and sleep patterns Mm. you is that also part of this story or are you able to look at the relationship between when people are binging and what the impact is on quality of sleep or duration of sleep does it matter you know that's not something that we focus on specifically in my lab, though I am familiar with some of the evidence in that area. You know, generally we do see poor quality sleep uh, with binge eating. And some folks have, have talked about there could be a, a direct effect of this, right? If you have a, a large binge episode just before you try to go to bed, you might be experiencing some discomfort, mm-hmm. uh, you know, physical discomfort when trying to when trying to fall asleep. And that could directly interfere with sleep, push it back. Um, so you have less sleep, you maybe still getting up at the same time in the morning and now you have less sleep, uh, because you're falling asleep later, or maybe you're waking up even more frequently during the night because your body's trying to digest this large, this large meal they had, um, other hypotheses would include that, um, a more indirect effect on sleep, which would occur through again, the, the, the binge episode essentially serving as a late in the day zeitgeber. Uh, so, so, you know, to, to the brain, it's external signals saying, hey, this time of day is not a time to get, you know, to wind down and get ready for bed. It's a time of day to be ready to eat and digest, which would have, uh, in theory, influences on subsequent nights in terms of making it more difficult to be ready to wind down when maybe you want to be winding down because your body's not quite there yet. It's again, it might be expecting some more food. As you look at the circadian physiology, what does that mean exactly? For those of us who oh. don't do that research, what do you what do you actually measure? And and 
how can you tell if things are what's different for the person who's binge eating and the person who's not? Yeah, circadian physiology. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things our body do our bodies do on this 24 hour rhythm, mm-hmm. and we've really focused so far on one because it's really because it's easy. Uh, it might also turn out to be a kind of lucky decision in a couple of ways. And th- that's cortisol uh, because you can measure it uh, quite well through saliva. Mm-hmm. And cortisol is a very clear circadian rhythm uh, hmm. that, that again is easy to quantify too once you uh, have the data from how much cortisol is in the saliva. And that's through what's known as the cortisol awakening response. So cortisol surges prior to awakening. And and reaches its highest level within a half an hour after we wake up for the day, and then falls pretty dramatically in about the next half hour or so, reaching pre-waking levels within that first hour of waking. And then it kind of slowly drops off the rest of the day, reaching its lowest level in the middle of the night before it surges again in anticipation of waking. So cortisol, this HPA axis uh, hormone, you know, is really uh, we think of it as stress hormone, but of course it's 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 normal rhythm is to surge before waking. It's really uh, largely responsible for readying us for activity in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, helps our our brains make the transition from sleep to wake. Mm-hmm. And um, but if we think about that, what it's doing, right? It's surging before we wake up. Well, how the heck does it know what time you put on your alarm clock? Yeah, and it doesn't. Of course, <laughs> it's based on your habitual wake time. So if right. you wake at the same time every day, your surge is going to be very well timed to help you get up and out of bed and transition from sleep to wake in a way that's adaptive and, and helpful, right? Get uh-huh. the foggyness sh- shaken from your, from your brain uh-huh. and, and, and uh, also probably get ready to eat a meal right away and uh, pretty soon after waking and so on. Now, if, so what happens if you don't have regular wake times or you get up at a very different time without warning your brain, you're going to do it, uh, mm-hmm. which of course we can't do. Uh, it's, you're going to either don't have that surge or you're going to miss it. And the the way I sort of provide an analogy for what this feels like is if you are someone who wakes up regularly at about the same time, you probably have this very nice spike in cortisol, this awakening response that we can measure through saliva timed um, in the first uh, hour after waking a few saliva Uh samples, then it probably feels like when you have to get up like four hours early for a super early flight where you just you just feel terrible. You're typically uh-huh. not hungry. If you do eat, you feel nauseated or right. You don't uh-huh. eat a lot. That's for sure. And you just, your head's just not quite right. Well, that's probably what folks who have a, a uh, disrupted circadian rhythm are feeling like every day uh-huh. because they're not experiencing this cortisol surge. And so what does that surge look like? If you're not, if you're not having it, it's basically blunted, but it's not just that the surge itself is lower. It's that that decline over the rest of the day ends up being less. So the surge in the morning is lower, but also cortisol in the evening is higher because huh. uh, we can think of it like a wave in that. In, and it's so just, people, yeah, it gets flattened. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the bottom gets brought up and the top gets brought down. So we could both think about, well, what does it mean to have them less cortisol in the morning uh, for things like appetite? But what also does it mean to have more cortisol in the evening for appetite? And this becomes potentially useful, but other ways of measuring it are with things like dim light melatonin onset. That's probably a slightly better way, but it requires an intravenous catheter and regular blood draws for uh, usually a minimum six hours with a planned bedtime. And you have to do the whole thing under dark conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. So much more labor intensive. Yeah. And would create 
significant hurdles in terms of uh, generalizability or other environmental factors that might be play at play. So are you suggesting that for people who are binge eating, particularly those who are prone to binge eating late in the day, which is the more typical pattern, right? That they are experiencing elevated levels of cortisol that because the they haven't gone through this cycle in the same pattern where you'd expect a significantly lowered level by the time you're going to bed. Is that correct? We think this is maybe something that's happening for some folks with binge eating. We have no, uh, first of all, we don't know how many, what proportion, but secondly, we in no way think that everyone with binge eating is characterized by circadian disruption. I, I think binge eating is multiply determined. I don't think this theory in any ways uh, undermines or even questions existing theory. I think it, it really exists at a separate level of analysis. It may be an and kind of situation, not an or. Uh, so yeah, I do think there are some people and and how many and what percentage is, is to be determined, I guess, who we could understand as having this, uh, having maybe a stronger circadian uh, disruption drive to their binge eating. Other folks, you know, social factors, emotional factors may be much more relevant. Uh, and and again, maybe you these, can't really separate them. Because maybe you can't really separate them, right? Because the behavioral aspects of routine and like you were describing earlier, going to bed at a regular time, waking up at a regular time, that can be a executive order decision at some point, but becomes a biologically reinforced decision, which becomes an executive decision. Like where's the chicken and egg, right? Um, yes. Dilemma about where we start the analysis. But clearly, um, there are, as you said, levels or layers of systems that are part of this story. And the idea that the circadian cycle is significant here is one that's really intriguing at so many levels. And, you know, when you said you're at Western Psychiatric, I thought you might go on to say that you met Ellen Frank and the work that she's done in terms of circadian cycles and um and mood disorders yes and how dramatic the results are in terms of treating mood disorders with certain interventions around sleep and regular regulating circadian cycles in meaningful ways so really fascinating Kyle you hesitated at the beginning to say, I don't know if it's a big idea, but I think this is really a fascinating whole program of research and as a field, so important in terms of looking at eating behaviors from a different lens and bringing in, as you said earlier, the different layers or different systems of understanding because the complexity of these conditions it's great. The complexity is great. And we need to be thinking about the many different ways in which the dysregulation, the disruptions um, can occur and then be reinforced and and ultimately reset or, or corrected. So really, really fascinating. Any last thoughts about this whole model and where you're going with it? 
I hope other people join in and testing it, I guess would be my last thought. Uh, I, I fear that we're, uh, I always fear I have a blind spot and I'm not seeing something that someone else is going to see, uh, some fatal flaw or, or even some way just to make more use of it. Um, because I ultimately hope it's useful, even though I'm sure it's wrong. I'm sure it's wrong in, in uh, probably meaningful ways. But what I hope it is, is useful, right, in prompting not just us, but other people to do research we might not otherwise do that has some impact down the road and, and improving treatment outcomes, I think, is is the most relevant potential outcome to this line. So, yeah, I, heard, I hope it's interesting enough to someone else out there that they'll join in and, uh, you know, improve upon it or decide what direction the best to take it from here. Uh-huh. Well, that's the voice, the mindset of a true scientist, right? You know that there are things that you don't know. There are no, you know, there are things about this model that will be proven wrong eventually, but with the methodology and always looking for what you don't know, clearly you're helping us figure out more about these conditions and it's a real contribution to the field. And thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your big idea. Oh, well, thank you. It was really my pleasure.